0: Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. How are you doing? I hope you're all doing very well. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit show. Today, we discuss science, astrophysics, technology, and all that wonderful stuff. Great to see you all. Let's see who all is there with us. Let's see uh, Vladimir, Adityanath, Rohit, Aditi, Amit, Suraj, Nikhil, Durga, Sarthak, Heartbreaking, Forty, Swapnil, Tushmita, Mr. Jesus, Rahul, Crazy Brain, Shweta, Priyanchi, Thomas, Vishal, Purubi, Sneha, Sayan, Zen, Mehul, Jay, Ashok Kumar, Gunit, Dilong, uh, Ayush, Harbi on wheels who is drunk in Goa. All the best, enjoy, sir. <laughs> uh, Suraj Gowda, Ankit Negi, GK, Trupti, Someone, Vishal Kumar, Dr. Nishchay, Aryan, Sardesai, Dig Vijay, Factopedia, The Walk, Paradigm Shift, and lots of other people. Great to have you all with us. Let's see some more people. R.I. Keshav, Ram, Samir, Janani, Lageraho, Online, Divyang, Joseph Stalin, Mayan, Mevada, Abhishek, Mohit, Lucifer, Morningstar, R.I. Abhijit, Kamat, Hindu, Sher, Punit, Kishan, Pranchu, Somnath, RTK, and lots of other people. Great to have you all on this tonight's show it's night here where i am and with that said let us get into the questions we are discussing science and all that fun stuff let's see the first question what is the first question for today Okay, Gihan Jain says, if nuclear submarines can be made, then why is it taking so much time to make nuclear power-based aeroplanes? And there's a related question of uh, with that. What are your thoughts on nuclear micro-reactors? Are they a viable and stable alternate power source in resource-scarce regions for long-term operation? That's from Pranav. And the first question about uh, nuclear aeroplanes is by Gihan Jain. So on a slightly tangential note, it reminds me of this... Uh, This wonderful piece of logic, you know. Uh, It it is said that uh, submarines are safer than airplanes. So why are submarines safer than airplanes? Because there are far more airplanes in the sea than submarines in the air. Logic. (laughs) Uh, Right, so that's why submarines are safer than airplanes. Anyhow, uh, let's come back to the question. (laughs) So, if nuclear submarines can be made, why is it taking so much time to make nuclear power based aeroplanes? It could be possible. The thing is, a nuclear, the thing about airplanes is that sometimes they tend to malfunction. Any piece of mechanical equipment, any piece of technology can malfunction. Now, if you are an you have an airplane, if it malfunctions, unfortunately, it crashes. This happens from time to time. A few crashes per year we witness, right, in various parts of the world. Uh, that's what that's what happens. Now, if you have a nuclear reactor on an on an airplane and it unfortunately, for whatever reason, crashes, you're gonna have a disaster unless you make the nuclear reactor so durable and so uh uh so hardy that it doesn't break open and leak out its its contents right so that's always a problem when you have an airplane that falls from the sky for whatever reason from a few kilometers up in the in the sky you're going to have a massive impact right and that impact could cause a catastrophe a nuclear catastrophe if there is a nuclear reactor on the airplane so the 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 solution would be, if you want a nuclear powered airplane, first of all, you would have to miniaturize the reactor. That's all, it's already a problem. It's already a huge technological challenge to miniaturize nuclear reactors for submarines, right? If you want to make a nuclear submarine, if you want to make it nuclear powered, you have to miniaturize the reactor. In your terrestrial, I mean, uh, your regular reactors, and your reactors can be as big as you want, want them to be. Size is not an issue. You can make them large. But For nuclear submarines, every single kilogram that goes onto it matters. So you have to miniaturize it. And miniaturizing reactors just for nuclear submarines itself is a huge technological challenge. Very few nations have been able to overcome this challenge, solve the uh, solve the challenge. I believe India is one of those nations that have overcome the challenge, yes, right. So uh, so it's already a challenge to make Reactors fit into new, into submarines. Now you want them to fit into aircraft. You're going to have to miniaturize miniaturize them even further. And I th- I think I don't think it's uh, right now within the uh, capabilities of any nation or any any or well, any technology technological advance to miniaturize uh, nuclear reactors that far, right? So that is the problem. And the, the, so there are two things. First of all, it's thus far it's not been possible to make nuclear reactors that small. As far as we know, whatever information is in the public domain, from that I am saying that we, nobody has thus far developed the capability to miniaturize nuclear reactors that much. And secondly, there's a the problem of, of for, even if the aircraft crashes, crashes for, for some other non-nuclear react, reactor-related reason, it's going to fall down and it's going to fall from a height of several kilometers typically. Yeah, the cruising altitude for airliners, commercial aircraft is typically 10, 11, 12 kilometers around around that that altitude. You have something falling from there. It's going to break open the reactor unless you make it really, really strong and durable, which would need additional weight, which would which would defeat the purpose of miniaturizing it. So these are the reasons why it's not been, why nobody has done it. As if I know the Americans and even the Soviets had tried this, they may have tested this out, nuclear powered uh, aeroplanes. Now, see, nuclear reactors can certainly be carried in a, a, aircraft. Yeah, if you have large enough aircraft. So you could use that to power the aircraft. Uh, there's also the concept of nuclear-powered uh, ramjets and scramjets, right? So in a ramjet engine, you are you first accelerate the rocket or the missile or whatever it is to a certain, I think, Mach 2 and beyond. At least Mach 1. And then the supersonic uh, ingestion of air powers the secondary uh, motor, which is a ramjet, right? So you can have nuclear power ramjets instead of uh, chemical r- chemical fuel powered ramjets. And that technology does exist. It's been tested out. You have a uh, reasonably small nuclear reaction going on. It heats air to incredible uh, temperatures and that's what powers the ramjet. So it is certainly possible to do it. So, so if you have a nuclear powered ramjet you could you, you could use the same technology on aircraft so the technology seems to exist yes yes but because of these concerns nobody wants to have flying nuclear reactors right so that that's the reason why it's not taking time it's that it's just a little bit too hazardous people are already scared of nuclear technology we have one or two incidents that have happened in the past the Three Mile Island incident, Chernobyl was a disaster. Fukushima, unfortunately, it's something that happened in 2011. That was not nice. Yeah, so these uh, these things scare people. Nuclear technology is unfortunately associated with the atomic bomb, which is a horrific weapon, and that's why people are scared. And, and, and you know, it's politically like in a, a hot potato kind of thing. Using nuclear technology on aircraft and all that stuff, people will be scared. There was this uh, technology called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging, NMR imaging. They had to rebrand it and call it MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. It's the same thing. They've just given it a new name, MRI, instead of NMR, because NMR stood for nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. And that scares the heebie-jeebies out of people, (laughs) the the term nuclear. So there are multiple factors uh, that go behind this. And that's why nobody has taken this, uh, has has done this, you know, especially for commercial aircraft. But we do have certain nuclear-powered uh, missiles. I believe the Russians, the, the Russians uh, announced that they have a nuclear-powered cruise missile. I think they announced it in 2019, if I'm not mistaken, 2018 or 2019. So the te- technology does exist. But for these reasons, it's not been adopted widely. Maybe there are some secret projects that are being run by certain countries, nations. Yeah, that would be Uh, utilizing such technology but not as it's not been announced or revealed or made available in the public domain right and there's this associated question about nuclear micro reactors are they a viable and stable alternate power source in resource scarce regions or for long-term operation so when you talk about nuclear micro reactors i mean one would imagine a nuclear reactor that can be carried on on a car or 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 uh, something that well not not something you can carry in a suitcase, most likely <laughs> that would be really scary, but yeah, something that can be transported by, by car. Yeah. And installed in homes or, or in buildings. And that would power the entire building for the foreseeable future. You know, as long as the nuclear fuel lasts and the fuel obviously would be replaceable and so on, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is certainly something that can happen that only the only constraint is that first of all, nuclear fuel is extremely expensive. It's typically uranium. You can also use tholium. You can also use plutonium. These, uh, Nuclear fuels are extremely uh, expensive and they have multiple uses. I mean, you put a nuclear reactor into civilian hands, God knows who else will get get their hands on it. So it, it it's something that needs extremely tight security. And that's why it's only used for typically for military and uh, other purposes. You can have nuclear reactors that power... Uh, a city and all, but those nuclear reactors are very heavily guarded, right? There's very, very strong security, multiple layers of security. So typically it's something you don't want the nuclear fuel essence, especially to fall into the wrong hands. It's something that lots of people would love to get their hands on and all kinds of shady and dodgy people and governments. We don't want that to happen. So that is the primary reason why nuclear micro-reactors haven't made their way into people's homes and people, buildings and stuff like that. The technology, if I mean, if you can miniaturize a nuclear reactor and put it on a nuclear submarine, if you can have a nuclear-powered ramjet on a cruise missile, the technology certainly exists to miniaturize it that far and make a micro-reactor, right? Uh, so I don't see it uh, gaining wide adoption because of the security concerns that go along with this. Yeah, you would, I mean, you can make a micro reactor and install it in a building, in a house, but you would need 24 by 7 by 365 armed guards and multiple layers of security to safeguard that. And that is something that's going to cost you a lot. Yeah. And the nuclear reactor itself will cost a lot. So it's not financially feasible thus far, as as far as uh, where we are in the 21st century. Maybe 100 years is not down the line. Maybe, I don't know, maybe even 20 years is not down the line. If you can solve the security issues and things like that. Yeah. So it is certainly something that can be done. But the nuclear fuel is very expensive. And there are these security issues. So what we can do is we can have multiple nuclear reactors inundation and that can power the nation. I believe France, for instance, uh, again, I think about 70% of its electricity needs are met by nuclear power, nuclear power stations, nuclear reactors. So you don't need nuclear micro reactors. You can have massive reactors that output a massive amount of electricity that can uh, power an entire city, an entire state, and and maybe a significant percentage of an entire nation's power supply, that can be done. So that's why we go big rather than small. That is the reason why it is so. And that's why I don't see it uh, uh, gaining a lot of currency, you know, micro reactors, for these reasons. All right, next question. Okay, Sorov says, Nick Brown, a renowned researcher in the field of psychology, says, said that you can't turn science into technology unless the science is solid and repeatable. That is correct. Then how did fields like psychiatry, social studies, behavioral sciences, etc. flourish if behaviors, the very root of all these fields, are still not very understood? See, technology, I I totally agree with what uh, Nick Brown, I don't know about him, but if if he has said this, he's absolutely right. Technology, uh, science can be turned into technology only if it is very well understood and you can repeat it on demand, right? If you can replicate the, the phenomenon again and again and again in a reliable manner, in a foolproof manner on demand, then you can turn science into technology. So you have so many examples of that, you know, laptops, they build laptops and uh, telecommunications. They are all built on the t- on top of quantum technology and so on and so forth. So we have all these technologies which are reliable and repeatable, right? So science can be turned into technology only when it is that way. Now, I do not consider psychiatry to be a science. It's voodoo. I know some people will get upset. Well, <laughs> well that's just what it is. Don't agree with me? That's fine. Feel free to, free to disagree. Social sciences are even less of science than psychiatry. Behavioral sciences, I mean, these are not sciences. Just because we put science at the end of social doesn't make it a science. Some people call themselves, I'm a social scientist. What a joke that is. There is no such thing as social science. It's not a science, it's social voodoo. And psychiatry again, psychiatry is about understanding the the human mind, yes. Now we know to the best of our understanding from all these centuries of understanding the human body and the human behavior and all that, we know that the the seat of the mind, the seat of consciousness is the human brain. I mean, you can cut off somebody's arm, the person's consciousness will not change. Yeah? People can suffer all kinds of injuries, arms, legs, etc. Their consciousness remains intact. It's only when the brain is, 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 is injured that there are altered states of consciousness, or if somebody suffers catastrophic brain damage, the consciousness evaporates, disappears, to the best of our knowledge. So the seat of consciousness, the seat of the mind is the brain. Now, tell me about any scientific, any medical discipline, let's say cardiology. In cardiology, you scan the heart, you take detailed, uh, you know, you, you image the heart through various, various means, you know, by injecting dyes into the bloodstream, and and you you can do a CT scan or whatever, right? You can do MRI scans of the heart to see if the heart is not working fine. You can see where there are blockages and all. So you take detailed images of the organ that you are studying and that you're trying to heal. When it comes to various other organs, whether, whether it's bones or whatever, you take detailed... You, you image the organs you're studying and you're trying to heal. When it comes to psychiatry, do they ever take brain scans? Do they ever, ever look at what's wrong with the brain structurally, physically? No. No, they don't do that. They 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 just uh, infer what may be happening and diagnose things, and that's why psychiatry is such a poor science. Uh, I am sure there are a few good psychiatrists who actually do it, uh, you know, take the take the thing seriously and do it in a scientific manner. Yep. Yeah. I know some, some comments are coming in, <laughs> that's alright, that's alright, some people will not like it, but this is my perspective. Psychiatry is not a rigorous science. Psychiatry is still hand-waving and voodoo. And that's why most psychiatrists don't really uh, produce any results for their patients. Yeah, pa- Patients may feel that something has happened, that that's mostly the placebo effect. Yeah. <laughs> And and they, they prescribe various drugs, chemicals, etc., based on very, very vague clusters of symbol, symptoms. Psychiatrists typically look for certain clusters of symptoms. Yeah. Unfortunately, those clusters of, of symptoms can be caused by a variety of pathologies. Some could be mental, some could be actually structural. Somebody fell down as a kid when they were three years old, they damaged their brain. No one knows that there is brain damage, and that persists and that manifests itself in a, as, as a certain cluster of symptoms and so on and so forth. So you need to actually scan the brain, first of all. No psychiatrist does, that I know of does this. Maybe 1% of psychiatrists must be doing it. So they don't even look at the organ they are trying to heal and then they'll call themselves medical professionals. It's a joke. Psychiatry, as of today, is mostly a joke. Yeah? It's not a reliable science. Social studies is it's just voodoo. Yeah? it's uh, you know i have nothing against studying society but you have to do it in a in a scientific manner you have to do it statistically you have something called statistical mechanics in physics where you where you look at the large scale behavior of gases in thermodynamic systems and things like that it is a rigorous science you can do you can apply similar principles to the study of society you you look at it statistically And you can see how behaviors emerge, how various, uh, how, how things change, how society evolves over time. And you can look at certain parameters, but you have to do it statistically, rigorously, mathematically, scientifically. Social studies today, most of it is about writing, God knows what kind of papers based on people's whims and fancies. It's a joke. I do not consider social studies to be a science whatsoever. And behavioral science, once again, it's about, you know, looking at various clusters of behaviors and clusters of symptoms and all it's it's in a way it's in a way similar to psychiatry you know and uh, yeah so i do not consider any of these fields to be scientific in nature and if <laughs> some people don't like it well they can keep coping okay cute whatever yeah i don't know what the name is okay the question is what's your take on homeopathy is it useless? And the doctors are fooling people. Why do so many people claim that they got permanently cured and refer others? Their medicine is a weird way of working. Is it, if it's that highly diluted, why do, does it smell strong like alcohol? If it's true, it has to be a placebo effect. What's your take on this? Yeah, right, right, right. There is something called, there is a, a term, right, that people use, homeopathic dose, which means a dose that's so dilute that it's insignificant. So listen homeopathy is something that i believe emerged in the 19th century in germany i think yeah and at that time science i mean the field of medical medicine has the head not even taken off we did not even ha- understand where diseases emerged from most of them emerge from from microorganisms organisms and all that we did not know that yet yeah so um uh, So homeopathic emerged in the 19th century and it kind of worked for some people. And even today, it's still a thing and there are lots of homeopathic practitioners and so on. So uh, a couple of days ago, I had this uh, interesting discussion with uh, Dr. Sid Warrior, who's a neuroscientist. He said that homeopathy actually works for many people. And the way it works... Is, is not because of the doses or whatever, but because of the, the way the doctor interacts with the patient. So typically when you go to a regular doctor in India, especially when, you, when you're paying less and when you go to a hospital with 5 million patients waiting in line, the doctor will typically speak to you for like 60 seconds or 120 seconds, two, three minutes at most, very brief interaction and he or she will prescribe whatever they think, think is right based on whatever symptoms you're exhibiting and you're done, out. And then the medicine... Is, is is what we call allopathic medicine right in the case of homeopathic doctors the doctors will take their time in interacting with the patient they will ask him how was your day how are your kids how's your wife how are things how's your work life going and so on and so forth they're gonna take a good 30 to 45 minutes interacting with the patient asking very detailed questions and the patient feels that the doctor cares you know so and, and that is the primary reason why the treatment works because the patient actually trusts the doctor and it is the trust that is that causes that what you would call a psychosomatic kind of reaction you know uh, and that's again that again is a manifestation of the placebo effect so it's not the Medicine that works—it's just just the fact that the the the, the doctors, uh, treat the patient in a certain way, and the patients uh, because of that they end up really trusting the doctor. And when you trust a doctor, even if they give you a salt pill and you swallow it, you you're gonna feel that it's working. And the fact that you feel it's working is gonna activate certain healing mechanisms in your in your body, yeah. The body has the brain can produce certain chemicals that that can have pain killing effects and they can make you feel better and all that right. So the placebo effect depends on a variety of factors and it seems that the, the homeopathic practitioners have cracked the code of how to induce a placebo effect in patients right. So the medicines don't work. If you it if a if if an allopathic doctor were to prescribe the homeopathic medicines, it's guaranteed that there will be no effect. The medicines won't work. The the treatment works only because of the induced placebo effect, the way the, the doctors interact with the with that patient. The homeopathic practitioners interact with the patient. So to sum it up, the medicines, whatever the medicines are, whatever the, the pills or whatever it is, they don't work. Right? They don't work. It's the it's just that they have figured out how to induce a placebo effect in people. And maybe it, it works for some people, but it's certainly not, not going to cure cancer or some genuinely serious illnesses. you got a cough, you got a cold, or you've got some long-term chronic problem that can be resolved by placebo effect. Yeah, it's going to work that way. Uh, I have no idea why does it smell like alcohol. I've never tried any homeopathic treatment. I don't know what it smells like. I believe it's sugar pills with it. I don't know, something infused in them. Uh Typically, I've seen those round little pills that people ingest like seven times a day or eighty-seven times a day. I don't know what is it. So I I don't mean to disparage or 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 demean something that does indeed work for some people. Yeah, but it's not the pills that work. It's not the so-called medicines that work. It's the the way they interact with the patients that induces a placebo effect, and that's what causes some people to get better. It's not going to make everybody get better. Yeah you got heart disease, you go to a homeopathic doctor, it's not going to cure you. Please be assured of that. You're going to need treatment from a proper cardiologist. That could actually cure you. You get uh, angiopathy or whatever it is, you know, uh, bypass procedures or whatever in case you have, I mean, in case somebody has cardiac issues and so on, depending on what your issues are. So that's how it is. So homeopathy is nothing but a way of inducing a placebo effect and that works for some people who have not very serious conditions. For other people, it's not going to work. So be careful. All right. Next question. Here we are. It's by Swapnil. What's the controversy surrounding the creation of the Darwaza gas crater in Turkmenistan? What chemical reaction has caused it to be still on fire after 50 years of its formation? And will it ever get extinguished? The Darwaza crater. Let's take a look at what this thing looks like. Uh, Let me Google that up. Darwaza Crater. Darwaza Crater. Uh, Let me put that on the screen so that you can see what this thing looks like. The Darwaza Crater. It's something that's in Turkmenistan. It's a gas crater. Let's see the images, shall we? These are the images of this crater. So it's a crater. It's a hole in the ground essentially that is on fire. It's been on fire since I think the 1970s. So yeah, around 50 years, about half a century. And some people have gone into it and so on and so forth. So what's the story behind this? Is there any controversy, right? So what is this thing? It's in Turkmenistan in in case you don't know where Turkmenistan, let's go to the map. Yeah, let's, let's do that as well. We have maps always. So let's go to Turkmenistan. Where is Turkmenistan? Let's go to the map. Turkmenistan is not far from India, in case you're wondering. It's not really far. It's northwest of Afghanistan, which was once Gandhar. So this here is Turkmenistan and in here somewhere, somewhere in this territory of Turkmenistan, you have the Darwaza gas crater. So now let's get that off the map of the screen. And what is this gas crater? So, uh, I believe the story, uh, see Turkmenistan in the 1970s, until 19, until the early 1990s, was part of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yeah, It was part of the Soviet Union, Turkmenistan. Uh, so, uh, there are gas resources, natural resources in Turkmenistan, natural gas and petroleum, etc., to a certain extent so various soviet geologists were scouring the length and the breadth of the soviet union to to find more uh, such uh, reservoirs of, of uh, petrochemicals of gas natural gas and so on so they they were do, doing some drilling some excavation work some investigation work in turkmenistan and then they found this big vein of gas that was emitting uh, natural gas methane and various uh, Natural gas is a mix of various gases, combustible gases. And uh, they were actually not looking for natural gas. They were looking for petroleum or or something like that. They were looking for oil, most likely. So that when they discovered gas, it's not what they wanted. They did not have any use for it. They did not most likely have the means to uh, means to collect it and use it for, for uh, commercial purposes and uh, energy generation. So what they did was they decided to burn it off. They thought it's a small... It's a small pocket of gas, gas or whatever, yeah. So let's burn it off. It'll burn off in a few days, maybe a week, and then we can move on with our work. They set it on fire. It is believed to be in the 1970s. Yeah, satellite imagery does seem to suggest it. It, it began in the 1970s. So they set this thing on fire, and eventually the the entire uh, gas the gas pocket collapsed, and it created this big crater, uh, which you can see. Let's put it again on the screen. So, there was a dome on it which collapsed and it, it gave rise to a big crater, as you can see. So, this began in the 1970s. It started burning. They thought it will burn out. The gas will get extinguished. It will burn out in a few days, maybe a week, maybe a month maximum. And it's still burning so that's what happened it looks like it's a very deep well and very deep reservoir reservoir of natural natural gas and it's burning and no one knows when it will when it will be extinguished whether it will be possible for it to extinguish itself on its own naturally or will some human intervention be required i believe the president of turkmenistan uh, gurbanguly Mohamedov, i think that's his name uh, apologies if i got it wrong so i believe the president of turkmenistan a few years ago had ordered that this be extinguished or whatever but clearly thus far it's not happened is it possible to extinguish it so i think the the diameter of this thing is about 60 or 70 meters that's that's a massive crater it's not small it's not a small crater 60 70 meters is big as you can see you can see human beings for scale it's a reasonably massive crater and it just keeps on burning it's not it's not uh, turning off on its own now there are other creators like this. There are other examples of fires that keep burning. I believe there is something in Azerbaijan or Armenia, there is some, some uh, a fire that's been burning for about 4,000 years. I think it, that's what uh, gave rise to the Zoroastrian uh, tradition of keeping fires burning forever, you know. Uh, Zoroastrians worship fire, agni, right? So, uh, so i think this this gas uh, this gas well in in armenia or azerbaijan wherever it is that could have been the root cause or or the or the origin of this zoroastrian custom of keeping fires alive you know for for centuries so there is one such example somewhere there in the caucasus region turkmenistan and sorry azerbaijan armenia where you have a fire that's been burning for more than 4000 years then in australia there's something called a burning mountain if i'm not missing let's let's google it is it burning mountain australia b-u-r-n-i-n-g burning mount mountain stria stria burning mountain stria so this here is a mountain that inside this mountain there is a, a coal vein or coal seam or something that has been burning for god knows how long i don't know centuries perhaps so even this thing has been burning for a very long time, maybe, maybe more than a thousand years, and it's it's a most likely a natural fire. So you have these phenomena that take place. There's even been a natural nuclear reactor somewhere in Africa, uh, that uh, that existed, that was active more than a billion years ago. So some such phenomena occur naturally. But in, ke- but in the case of the Turkmenistan Darwaza crater, it is something that was that was created artificially by geologists who assumed, I would say, a little naively that it would burn out in a week's time. There was no there was no uh, evidence that it would it would stop burning in a week's time. So they made the assumption, the kind of naive assumption that it's a small pocket of gas; it'll burn out, and so on. It's still burning, and. Uh, it may be possible to extinguish it naturally. So fire needs three things. Uh, it needs oxygen, it needs fuel, and it needs a heat source. So in the case of the Turkmenistan gas well, the a gas well, the fuel is there, natural gas, right? Oxygen is there, the atmosphere, which the crater is directly exposed to and the heat source was provided by the soviet geologists so they ignited the fire and it's still burning so the heat source is there the fuel is there and the oxygen is there so you want to kill the fire you have to deprive it of one of these three things the natural gas there seems to be an an apparently inexhaustible reservoir of gas so you're not going to be able to cut that off oxygen out there that's one thing or the fire the fuel now uh, sorry the, the the temperature the fire The spark. The the spark is there. I would say the easiest way, comparatively easiest way would be to blanket it in sand or something, which would cut off the access to the oxygen for the flames and that could maybe stop it. But then you would have all this natural gas escaping into the atmosphere. Um, Maybe they would want to take care of that as well, maybe by sealing the crater. So it's not an easy task to switch off the fire and to seal off the crater and stop the natural gas from escaping. So the question for the government is, is it worth doing it? It's going to cost a lot of money, uh, manpower to do that. Is it worth doing it? Or can we just use the money for something else, you know, the resources? So so that's where we are. So there's no real controversy as such. This is what happened. And it's something that, that keeps on going. And I think it's kind of a tourist attraction of sorts these days. People want to go there and have a photograph there, you know. It's even been used as one of the uh, st- uh, one of the pit stops for a rally you know car rally or whatever motorcycle rally or something so yeah it's become kind of a tourist attraction it's one of the attractions that you have in this nation of Turkmenistan people if they go to Turkmenistan they want to visit the darwaza crater so maybe it's something they, they may want to keep keep going perhaps so it's for them to decide so there's no controversy as such this is what happened Shazam. Says, what type of radiation is released by mobile phones? Is it harmful? Mm, good question. So, mobile phones. Where's mine? It's not here. So, mobile phones is something we all carry. We all carry it. Unfortunately, we carry it twenty-four by seven. Essentially, these days. So, and and the mobile phones do emit certain amounts of radiation, and that's why it's something that is of uh, utmost concern to most people. Hopefully. As to what sort of radiation is it giving off? Is it harmful? Right. So there are see the the radiation we are talking about is electromagnetic radiation photons. We're talking about photons, electromagnetic radiation. Now, electromagnetic radiation occurs in a spectrum, various frequencies, frequency wavelength. It's uh, two sides of the same coin. So there's a whole spectrum of electromagnetic radiation, and you could crudely, roughly. Divided into two parts, ionizing radiation and non-ionizing radiation. So what is ionizing radiation? It is radiation that is so energetic, it can knock electrons out of atoms. It can break chemical bonds. It can damage DNA. That is a scary radiation. That's what we don't want. Because you have that next to you, it's going to mess up your internal structure. If it causes DNA damage and mutations, that gives rise to cancers. So, ionizing radiation is dangerous. What is ionizing radiation? X rays, gamma rays, etc. Even ultraviolet radiation, uh, ultraviolet light is, is uh, to some extent ionizing radiation. Yeah, ultraviolet rays are dangerous. They can cause skin cancer. That's why people with uh, very light skin tone, you know, white, white skin, the ones who live in Australia, they have a very high incidence of skin cancer because Australia is a very sunny place. Hmm? And you have these people who don't belong there who now have occupied the place, they're living there, the white people, they've got very light skin, and that's the, that's uh, something that is unable to ward off the electromagnetic radiation, especially the ultraviolet rays that do make it through the atmosphere. The natives of Australia, they have very dark skins, that's why they are naturally protected, that's how they evolved over 60-70,000 years. So yeah, okay, so now coming back to radiation emitted by mobile phones. what? kind, what manner of radiation is it? Okay, let me put something on the screen, you know, what is the spectrum of electromagnetic radiation so that it will give you a good illustration of how it is, electromagnetic radiation. Let's put that on the screen. Let us see the spectrum. Google search electromagnetic spectrum and then we do a Wikipedia, uh, we do a dive into Wikipedia. Now, uh, for wikipedia let me again remind you all it's not entirely reliable but for the sake of when it comes to science it's more reliable than as opposed to history so here if you can see we have the electromagnetic spectrum so we have ionizing radiation then you have the visible uh, part of the spectrum and then you have a uh, low frequency radiation so when it comes to visible light Okay, the light that we can perceive with our eyes—that's what we can see, right? It's—it's uh, it's got a wavelength of between hundred nanometers to one millimeter. Yeah, uh, actually, even not that. A near infrared. So yeah, you can see over here what the visible spectrum is. It's near the near ultraviolet, from one micrometer to hundred nanometers, around that. Yeah, then you have ionizing radiation that starts from the ultraviolet to the extreme ultraviolet, to soft x-rays, to hard x-rays, to gamma rays. Extremely uh, high frequency and high energy radiation. So you can see how much energy each photon carries. 1.24 MeV, which is gamma rays. That's frightful, right? Extreme ultraviolet radiation. Uh, the photons have about 124 electron volts of energy. Even that is a scary. Yeah. Now, when it comes to mobile phones, they give off Radio waves, the they, they mobile phones work in the radio frequency uh spectrum, so it's typically a high frequency media. I'm not sure exactly which, which part of the radio wave frequency it, it uses, but it's typically not very high frequency, it's maybe high frequency medium or whatever, right? So, mobile phones, as far as we know, as far as we are told the radiation that they release is very small amounts of radio frequency electromagnetic radiation and the, r- mobile phones essentially are, are radio sets yeah two way radio sets so that, that's what they are and we need all these cells you know uh, mobile cells these towers where you can which act as uh, transmitting stations and that's how th- that's why they're called cell phone because we need these various cells in a particular geographic region uh so so as far as we know from whatever information is available in the public domain, the only radiation that mobile phones release is radio waves. Radio waves are not ionizing radiation, not by a far distance. Radio waves are safe. Okay, so, so the thing is this. The only way to know for sure is to have radiation detectors. You would need a Geiger counter, GM counter or something in very you know, detectors of various kinds. You put that next to your mobile phone and only then will you know for sure. I mean, I these counters are not available in the, I mean, you know, expensive and not readily available. So I have never done a test on my mobile phone with what sort of radiation is it releasing. So what we do is we we trust what the authorities say and what the mobile manufacturers say. They say that it's radio frequency radiation, which is not a concern. If it is only that, perfectly good, no issues and as far as as we know the, there are no uh, radioactive elements in mobile phones and if there are no radioactive elements there should be no ionizing radiation uh, whether it's extreme ultraviolet or x-rays or gamma rays so from what i can see from all the information that i have seen in the public domain it appears that uh, mobile phones are safe they only release they only uh, work in the radio frequency electromagnetic spectrum which is safe which we know is safe yeah, so that's what i can tell you okay dongar singh johan says how is it possible to hear sound from a black hole mm. okay so to answer this question first of all we have to address the question of what is sound how is sound produced and how do we perceive sound by sound by what mechanism do we perceive sound mm-hmm. if you understand that then we will be able to answer this question yeah so let's unpack it a little bit what is sound sound is vibration vibration w- vibration of what the vibration of the air molecules in the atmosphere that's what sound is so i have a sound source this the larynx right? my my sound box voice box yeah over here it's producing the speech that i am currently uh, issuing forth yeah and that is w- what that does is, is it produces vibrations and that these vibrations m- make the air molecules in this room vibrate to uh, vibrate at those frequencies that we perceive as sound so these air molecules vibrate hmm? and those vibrations are picked up by our ears there's this very sensitive structure called the eardrum and there's a whole structure that goes that connects the eardrum to nerve uh, to nerve endings that essentially go back into the brain, and that's how we perceive these vibrations as sound. So our brain interprets these vibrations at various frequencies, at sounds of different pitches. High pitch sound, low pitch sound, that sort of thing, right? All right. <laughs> so that that's how it works. So, so different frequencies produce we interpret that as different pitches of sound. Now, I am speaking in this room in, in a certain location on the planet. You all may be on different parts of the planet, maybe on opposite sides of the planet, depending on where you are. And you are able to hear me. What's happening? I have this instrument here. It's called the microphone. It, trans- it 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 interprets these vibrations that I'm producing in terms of, I think, the electromagnetic spectrum that is then transmitted across the internet. And then it is, it is reinterpreted again back as regular sound through whatever speaker you have, whether it is these these tiny little speakers, right? Tiny little speakers or big speakers or whatever. So that's how it happens. So sound is the vibration of a medium. The medium we are in is the earth's atmosphere, the air molecules that we uh, are immersed in. Sound is the vibration of that. And there are various, there's a whole frequency of sound waves as well. like Just like we have a, a spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, there's a sound spectrum as well. We can't hear uh, what is it called? What the bats hear? Uh, ultrasound. It's called ultrasound, right? Cats and dogs can hear that, I believe. There are certain whistles that only dogs can hear. You blow it, you won't hear a thing, but dogs will be like, hmm, what is that? Here I am. <laughs> right? So the human ear can perceive a certain range of frequencies of sound. Now that we kind of understand what sound is, vibration of the air molecules around us, the question is, is it possible to hear sound from a black hole? Now Black holes are way, way, way far away from here. The closest black hole that we know of is the ultra, is a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. And this is a reasonably passive black hole. It doesn't have an accretion disk, so it's not doing much. Yeah, And it is sitting in vacuum. I think there is an internet issue. Is there? Let me uh, resolve that, hopefully. The connection is unstable. It says, one second. Please give me a minute. I think there is an issue with the connection happens occasionally. Um, Let me take a look at the chat. Are you able to see me well? Is there a lag? Is there a lag? Is it fine? Is the connection good? I think the connection is good now. Okay. Thank you very much for the feedback. Let's go back to the question. Okay. So now that we know what sound is, sound is the vibration of the air molecules around us—that's what we perceive as sound. A black hole sits in outer space. There is no atmosphere there. There are no air molecules there. It's an almost perfect vacuum. So, if a black hole uh, vibrates in some way or whatever, yeah, it would vibrate in the gravitational fre- fre- gravitational waves range. Yeah, it will have gravitational frequencies so there is no air molecules or atmosphere that it is making vibrate so then how do we hear sound from a black hole you can't but what you can do is when there's a merger let's say two black holes are merging they merge together they're going to make big waves in the fabric of space time they're going to create these gravitational waves massive gravitational waves see when you look when you when you're sitting at the seashore Hopefully, you see little small waves, little ripples, yeah? But unfortunately, once in a long time, once in a few decades, you have a tsunami. A tsunami is just a wave, but it's a massive wave. So when you have two black holes merging, they produce a gravitational wave tsunami, a massive wave with a huge amplitude. And that's what our gravitational wave detectors pick up. Now, these gravitational waves have frequencies and wavelengths, just like light has frequencies in wavelength, and just like sound has frequency in wavelength. So what scientists can do is they can, once they have detected a gravitational wave signal, they can interpret that frequency in terms of sound waves, and they can produce an equivalent sound that is uh, representative of the gravitational wave that was produced by the, by the merger of two black holes. So you can interpret that extrapolate that into the sound spectrum and take a look at what it would sound like if it was not gravitational waves but sound waves. That's what you can do. Then you also have certain black holes that are surrounded by these massive, massive gas clouds, accretion disks. In these tightly packed dense gas clouds, there are molecules of gas over there. If you are unlucky enough to be there, you would hear sound if you are (laughs) in that environment. So if you are there, you could actually hear sound. And if you can detect that uh, accretion disk, and for whatever through whatever means you can see at what frequency it's vibrating, you can recreate that sound on Earth. And that would be actual sound. Yeah. So these are some of the ways in which you can possibly hear sound from a black hole. Firstly, you could interpret the gravitational waves it's emitting in terms of auditory sound waves. And that's what that would sound like. Or if it actually has an accretion disk, and that accretion disk is vibrating at a certain frequency, you could recreate that frequency here on our planet and you could hear what it actually sounds like over there. So these are two possible ways in which you could hear sound from a black hole. You would have to recreate it over here. You cannot directly hear it because it's separated from us by the immense vacuum of space. But you can recreate and reinterpret the sound on Earth and it would sound like what it sounds like over there to some extent. All right? Okay, Yathartha says, are black holes actually fuzzballs? Fuzzballs. What are fuzzballs? You know what I like about this question? The first part of the question is, are black holes actually fuzzballs? And then he asks, what are fuzzballs? That's how you do science. You keep on asking why or what until you get to the root of the matter. Right? So first of all, to understand whether black holes are fuzzballs or not, we have to understand what fuzzballs are. Okay, so what are fuzzballs? I think it was Samir Mathur who came up with the term fuzzball, if I'm not mistaken. That's the paper about 15-20 years ago that he published. Fuzzballs. So what are these fuzzballs? A fuzzball is a bag of strings. Or bag, box, ball, a ball. (laughs) A ball that contains strings. A ball filled with strings. Now you should ask me the question if you are awake, what are strings? You want to get to the root of the matter, you have to ask that question. What are strings? I am saying a fuzzball is a ball, a bag of strings. So then you need to know what strings are. Strings are one-dimensional uh, vibrating objects made up of pure energy, essentially. You can think of it that way. That's the best analogy I could offer you. One-dimensional uh objects made of pure energy that are vibrating in, in various manners. Now, now you could also ask me what dimensions are. Let's not go as far as deep as that. I, I'm sure we all understand what dimensions are. Three dimensions of space that we live in, length, breadth, height, three dimensions. This is a three-dimensional object. Yeah, it has length, height, uh, height and breadth and so on. And there's a fourth dimension of time which we perceive vaguely and so on. So these strings are not three-dimensional objects. They're not two-dimensional objects, flat. They are one-dimensional objects made of pure energy. Energy that vibrates at certain frequencies in complex ways. And that is that is the building block of string theory. Yeah. So, so there is this is one way in which you can actually create a black hole from, from the inside out. You can build a black hole mathematically from the inside out using one-dimensional str- strings. You put a bunch of strings together in a ball. And then you calculate the properties this ball has. And you can build a black hole out of that. So how are black holes built mathematically? They typically emerge as the solutions of Einstein's field equations in general relativity. Even before general relativity came out in 1915, the, the concept of black hole black holes did exist, yeah. It all starts with the concept of escape velocity every object has a certain escape velocity. For Earth, it's what? 11, 12 kilometers per second. One quote me on that, somewhere around that. The Sun has a much higher escape velocity. Jupiter has a much higher escape velocity. So for each gravitating object, you have a certain escape, escape velocity. What if an object is so dense and so large, so dense, that the escape velocity is equal to or greater than the speed of light? In In that case, even light cannot escape From that object. And that is the concept of the black hole. So it's something that that predates general relativity. But the actual rigorous mathematical singularities emerge out of the equations of general relativity. Solutions of Einstein's field equations which gave us black hole solutions. Singularities. Singularities are these horrific scary objects that divide you by zero. (laughs) All right. Uh, Unphysical objects, which actually tells us that there is something deeper at work over here, and there are certain flaws in general relativity, which can only be solved by uh, quantizing it, when we still haven't been able to do that. So, typically black holes, are they arise out of the equations of general relativity. General relativity is a large-scale theory, macroscopic theory, a theory of the macroscopic world. Now, when you're building a black hole, in a quantum manner, you have to do it inside out instead of outside in. So how do you build a black hole quantum, quantumly? quantumly? There are multiple ways of doing it. You can model a black hole as a bag of photons. You could do that. It works. It gives you a whole different set of properties than the classical black holes. Yeah, The Schwarzschild radius doesn't, doesn't work there. There's something called a critical radius which is different from the Schwarzschild radius and so on. I'll not go there. So what Samir Mathur, as far as I know, he's the first person, if I'm not, if I'm mistaken, forgive me, but what Samir Mathur did was he created a mathematical black hole out of a collection of strings. And he called this thing a fuzzball, right? So that's how, that's one way of building a black hole inside out at the very small, from the very small scale, using one dimensional strings. You could use a bag of photons, a a bag of gravitons or whatever, you could do it in a variety of ways. So what... This model is is the fuzzball model, a bag of strings, and you can, uh, you know, solve the mathematical problem. You can work out the equations, and that gives you a black hole. Yeah, and that kind of solves the not solve, but it's it's one way of uh, avoiding the singularity problem. The singularity problem is that deep inside the black hole at the very center, uh, the space-time curvature becomes infinite and, and the density of matter also becomes infinite, which is unphysical. Infinities are un- unphysical. So in the case of the fuzzball model, you have a bag of strings. So there is no in- there is no singularity within. Mm, interesting, isn't it? So that's what the fuzzball model is. Are black holes fuzzballs? I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what black holes actually are. We will know only when we have a black hole in our lab and we can, you know, poke and prod it and do various things to it. (laughs) So we don't have a black hole in the lab. We have objects that appear to be black holes that we have observed here, supermassive black holes. They could even be wormholes. Who knows? They could even be white holes. Who knows, right? So we don't know for sure what they are, but they do appear to be black holes. They do exhibit all the properties that a black hole would have. But we still don't know what exactly there are. You could you could create objects mathematically, quantum mechanically, that are not quite black holes, but almost black holes, and they would behave almost the same from a far distance. You could not be able to tell what they are, you know. So, so the the answer is we don't know what black holes actually are because we know what happens when you are falling towards a black hole. We know there is an event horizon. We know that when you cross the event horizon, horizon you are lost to the universe, more or less. And what happens inside, we don't know. No one knows exactly what inside. what, what is inside. Is there this monstrous singularity? Is there a bag? Is there, is, is there a bag of strings? Is it a bag of photons? Is it a bag of gravitons? Is it something else? Unicorns and ice cream? We don't know, right? And that's what the research is all about. That's what we are trying to investigate. What actually are black holes? What would be inside a black hole, right? And... To do that, to to actually figure out eventually what is inside a black hole, we will have to crack the puzzle of quantum gravity. We will have to reconcile Einstein's general relativity with quantum mechanics and quantum field theory. It's not been possible to do that thus far. People have tried. That's why string theory was was devised as a possible solution. But it it has its own set of problems. It doesn't seem to be giving us answers. So we still don't know what's going on. So so that's what a fuzzball is, that's what the fuzzball model is, That's what, and we still don't know what actually black holes consist of, what's inside a black hole. So the, the answer is, I don't know, no one knows. No, You, you ask any physicist, they will say we don't know. But we, we have these different approaches, we have these different possibilities, different models. But which of these works, which of these is the correct model, we still don't know as of 2022. That's where we are. But good question. Very interesting and fascinating topic. Lakshya Sharma says, could this mysterious dark matter just be primordial black holes all along? Mm -hmm. Primordial black holes. So what are primordial, okay, first of all, what's dark matter? The universe has a certain amount of mass. We observe the universe through our eyes, through telescopes, through various instruments, etc. And we see all these stars and we see galaxies and we see gas clouds and dust clouds and nebulae and things like that. Every single goddamn thing we see in the, in the universe is less than 5% of the actual mass of the universe. 95% of the mass of the universe, roughly, is dark. We don't know what it is. Everything we see is less than 5% of the universe. That's how little we know about the universe. So 95% is unknown to us. Out of this 95%, roughly 25%, roughly, roughly, very roughly 25% is dark matter which we have some idea what, would, what properties it has and all that, and the rest is dark energy, which we have no clue about. A dark energy seems to be some kind of force or some kind of fluid that permeates the universe. It's here right now, right here, right now. Yeah, but we don't know what it is. And it seems to be an anti-gravity kind of force. It's, it's, it's making the universe expand. It's, and the expansion of the universe is accelerating so it's it's actually making space time itself expand yeah that's what dark energy is dark matter is this missing matter this dark matter that, that uh, we know it exists it makes galaxies rotate in, in a certain way which is counter to what they would rotate like if it was only the visible matter right so typically every typically most galaxies have a dark matter halo A spherical dark matter halo. A typical galaxy is a disk, yeah, like the Milky Way, like the Andromeda Galaxy. It's enveloped in a massive dark matter halo, which is actually about 90% of the the galaxy's mass. Typically, a galaxy, whatever you see, all the luminous matter, stars, all all that, is about 10% of the galaxy's mass. And about 90% is a dark matter halo, typically, typically, on average, roughly, yeah. So that's what dark matter is. Now the question is what is dark matter? What is it composed of? What we know is that it doesn't interact electromagnetically, which means we can't see it. It's invisible. It's not dark, it's invisible. So it doesn't interact electromagnetically. It has no electromagnetic interaction. Most likely it only interacts through the gravitational force. So it is some kind of exotic, for us, exotic matter because it's not something we experience in, in day-to-day life there is most likely dark matter passing through the earth the solar system may be enveloped in dark matter there could be a wind of dark matter particles passing through me right now yeah and we will not know about it so it is some mysterious matter some a mysterious particle or a mysterious class of particles that all seem to have this common property that they interact only gravitationally uh, some people tried to postulate that there could be weak interaction as well the weak nuclear the, the weak force And that's where the axion came from and all that. but And then various other things as well. It's not quite worked out. So the most likely hypothesis is cold dark matter made up of purely gravitating particles. So what are these gravitating particles? We still don't know. So could it be primordial black holes? Now let's ask ourselves, what are these primordial black holes? When we think of black holes, we think of these monstrous objects at the center of galaxies that are sucking everything in. Yeah. But um, black holes aren't that nasty or evil typically, they're just gravitating objects, purely gravitating objects. Now, uh, they they could have charge also and magnetic fields, but yeah. So uh, what are primordial black holes? So in the very, very, very incredibly, very early universe, uh, we know the the Big Bang model, yeah, at at the very beginning of space, of, of time, all the mass and energy and everything that we see in the universe and everything we don't see was concentrated in a single point, an infinite, infinitesimally dense and hot point. And then something made that expand, that is the expansion of space-time, and that's what we call the Big Bang. It was not an explosion, it was an expansion of space-time and everything contained within it. So in the very early universe, you could have had these quantum fluctuations that arise out of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, quantum field theory, yeah, all that. So these quantum fluctuations happen. We know they exist. They happen everywhere. Empty space, the vacuum of space is not empty. It's teeming with this virtual particle-antiparticle pairs. Quantum fluctuations. So in the very early universe, quantum fluctuations could have produced regions of over-densities that could have been the seeds of black holes. Very tiny microscopic black holes. Primordial black holes. You know, in the primordial very early universe. And there could have been uh, and. A massive amount of primordial black holes produced at different early epochs in the universe's history, pre uh, preheating, reheating, even uh, pre-inflation, maybe post-inflation. Also, yeah, there are various mechanisms through which there could be, there could have been an overproduction of primary primordial black holes. So most likely, primordial black holes were produced in enormous, abundant quantities in the very early universe. Small, microscopic black holes. Yes. The question is, where are they? Where are they? Now, we know that black holes have a temperature. They're thermodynamic objects. If you have a temperature, you're going to give off radiation. And the smaller a black hole is, the hotter it is. The bigger it is, the colder it is. So supermassive black holes are very cold. Very, very, very cold. They could be colder than the the temperature of space, the cosmic microwave background radiation temperature. Um, But the smaller a black hole is, the hotter it is. And the hotter it is, the more it, the faster it essentially gives off radiation. The faster it evaporates, and the end point of a black hole's life is a massive explosion. Boom! That's how it goes. That's how it dies. Yeah. So, if primordial black holes were produced in enormous quantities in the early universe and they were very small, they could have possibly all exploded and died out, evaporated out. That's one scenario. The other scenario is that by some unknown mechanism, they still survive until today. Hmm? Maybe. Uh, They leave leave Planck-scale remnants, the so-called Planckons, Cornucopions, whatever they call them these days. uh, Planck-scale objects. And maybe at the Planck-scale, there is no more evaporation of black holes. In which case, you could have a massive quantity of Planck-scale black holes that are wandering around. And maybe they make up what we call dark matter. Maybe through some mechanism we don't understand, primordial black holes or micro black holes could have formed bound states, quantum bound states and maybe in these quantum bound states they don't evaporate and maybe these quantum bound states don't behave like black holes but they behave like exactly like cold dark matter supermassive uh, not supermassive uh, dark matter but but the cold dark matter heavy particles there are all these possibilities these particles would be quite massive but very 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 small and this is what this is a theory that I have I had co-authored in two thousand two, all the way back in two thousand two. You know, uh, stable bound states of primordial black holes that could uh, constitute dark matter. So these are all possibilities. There are. There's no way, as of today, of proving it. If there are bound states of primordial black holes that are stable and they do exist, they would give off gravitational radiation. They would give off gravitational waves, quantized gravitational radiation. But this gravitation, these gravitational waves that they emit, are not detectable with the detectors that we have today. The best, the only gravitational wave detectors that work today are the LIGO detectors, right? The LIGO detectors can only detect gravitational wave tsunamis, enormous gravitational waves, not tiny ripples in space-time. For that, you need extraordinarily sensitive detectors, which you don't have have today. So if primordial black holes did form bound states, and quantized bound states, those quantized bound states would give off quantized gravitational radiation, just like you see light, that sort of thing, in those frequencies, In, in similar frequencies, but in the gravitational wave, domain, yeah? But as of today, there's no way of proving it. So it's just a theory. So it is possible, yes, it is possible that primordial black holes could be dark matter, or bound states of primordial black holes could be dark matter, or Planck scale remnants of primordial black holes could be dark matter. A I would say it's a very high possibility, a strong possibility. Now, physicists have been looking for all kinds of different dark matter candidates. There used to be machos, there used to be wimps, They were looking for for, uh, gravitational wave microlensing, the the macho thing, yeah? Uh, Massive, compact, hollow objects, machos. Uh, They were looking for axions. They were looking for supersymmetric dark matter. All of these searches have turned up empty-handed. Maybe it's time to take primordial black holes a little more seriously again. So it's it's an ongoing process. But yes, I, I personally think primordial black holes are a very important candidate for dark matter. Okay, Dr. Nishoy says, why do Asian elephants have smaller tusks or no tusks compared to their African counterparts? Uh, I believe that Asian elephants are even physically somewhat smaller than their African counterparts. African elephants typically I believe grow larger, somewhat larger than Asian elephants. And I believe even the African lions are somewhat physically larger than Asian, Asiatic lions. And the only Asian lions left are are in in India, Western India, Gujarat, the Gir forest region. Yeah. Uh, so why is it so? Well, they have evolved differently. They have evolved differently. Uh, Africa and Asia were connected. Let's let's take a look at the map. Obviously, let's let's make sense to look at the map since we are talking about these things. Where is our map? So here's the map. So, Africa and Asia were connected in this region, the Sinai Peninsula, the Egypt, uh, Egypt and uh, this region, it's connected. So, in the past, uh, animals could have migrated around this place. You had the so-called Barbary Lion that lived on both sides of the divide. Now, you have this artificial divide called the Suez Canal. it's it's an artificial thing, it's not not a natural thing. So there used to be this land connection here. In the past, during the ice ages, etc., it would have been possible to cross over through the Bab al Mandeb Strait and various other places as well. So there have been connections between Africa and Asia. So it's possible that species transmigrated, etc. But, so we have certain species that are present on both continents. Lions are a good example. Elephants are another good example. Mm -hmm. Now, What we don't realize is how large Africa is. Uh, Let's see Africa Asia comparison. Africa Asia size comparison. Take a look at that. Let me put this off the screen and let's put something else on the screen. Africa Asia size comparison. Now, why am I comparing sizes? Because it's relevant. See how large Africa is. See where India fits into Africa. Can you see? This is India. This is China. This is the UK, as big as Madagascar, the US. Africa is enormous. And the maps that we use, the mercantile projection, they don't show us how large Africa actually is. Africa is a massive, massive place. It's the the biggest continent of all. So, when you have animals that live in a continent of this Scale. they have massive amounts of territory that they can use as their home range yeah massive territories so they will cover massive distances in various migrations uh, and that has an effect over the millennia on the size of an animal an animal that has access to more land and more resources that sort of animal can evolve can can afford evolutionary from an evolutionary standpoint, to grow, to grow larger. Because there is an abundance of territory it can cover and an abundance of, of food that it has. Africa's grasslands, savannas, etc. are abundant in food, in, in, in grassland and, and all that. So in today we have very few wild animals left in Africa. Even in the 1960s, 1970s, you had so many more wild animals, zebras, gazelles, elephants, it's all been killed off by the white people, by the Europeans who, who who used Africa as a place for their hunting activities and just killing animals for, for sport. And, you know, this, this wanton massacres, pointless massacres of animals. That's why the numbers have come down so badly. There are very few animals left in Africa today. Africa was this enormous continent filled with herds, incredibly large herds of animals. Yeah, And it could support So many animals, that's how rich Africa is, has been. So these animals, they had access to such an incredible abundance of resources. That's why they typically grew larger. That's why the African lions are typically larger than Asiatic lions, and that's why African elephants have over the millennia, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, evolved differently from their counterparts, their cousins who live in Asia. In Asia, the terrain is different from that of Africa. Asia is full of these river valleys. Like, let's take a look at the Indian subcontinent. There are mountain ranges, the Aravalis, the Sahyadris, the Vindyas, the Himalayas, etc., the, 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 the Western Ghats, and so on and so forth. You have that. And you have forest. Today we don't have forests. In the past, you had these massive forests and river valleys. In Africa, you do not have forests. You had these savannas, grasslands. Yeah. So that's why the the, the terrain. And the living environment is different in Asia compared to Africa. And that's why it has caused these species to evolve in different ways when it comes to Asia and Africa. So because of that, the African elephants typically grew larger and they had longer tusks. When you grow larger, your tusks also become longer. That's typically how evolution goes. You adapt based on your environment. So that's why Asian elephants are smaller and they have smaller tusks compared to their African counterparts. Okay, Swapnil says, is it possible to print bones using a three-dimensional 3D printer to replace bones that have been broken or damaged beyond repair in a human or animal body? Yes, 3D printing technology is is really uh, coming up. It's it's, uh, it's something that, that is possibly poised to transform the way we do things yeah, the way we construct things the way we build material, build things maybe it's something that could transform medicine as well so when someone's bone is broken, when someone shatters their femur or tibia or radius or ulna or whatever if the if the, if the break is very clean, you can just uh, set the bone again and, and immobilize it for like a few months, 3 months or so 3-4 months, whatever, depending on the person, you take calcium tablets and it heals you know in in a few months but if the if the break is complex if if the bone is shattered into pieces or something then typically what you do is you insert a metal metal rod rod a steel rod a sterile steel rod and you and you uh, you reconstruct the bone you you may piece it together using screws yeah that's what's done and that's typically what's been done thus far. Uh, and you have to make sure that the materials you use are sterile and uh, they are non-reactive biologically, right? So typically, if people have used steel, stainless steel, sterile stainless steel, well-treated. They have used. Uh, there's also been the use of ceramics. So ceramics are also very uh, non-reactive. They and uh, and they are well-suited for this sort of uh, purpose. So in the future, yes, it's certainly possible that three uh, D printed bones could be used. So someone, let's say they've shattered some some power, some bone, you could remove those shattered pieces and insert an exact replica of the of how the bone used to be, but three D printed. So it's all uh, it's certainly going to be possible. I'm even hearing that you could have three D printed organs in the future. Yeah, uh, the, I think that's still some time off. That's still. A few years off, maybe a couple of decades off, perhaps. But yes, we are witnessing these advances in medical technology. So the question is, what sort of material is going to be used to 3D print the bones? Mm. Um, I would say it should be something that's similar to the bone, to what what constitutes a bone itself. See, bones are complex, um, complex things. A bone is not just a, a, a solid object. It is porous, you know. It is biologically active. It is alive inside a bone. There is a there is this hollow space in which you have bone marrow. Bone marrow is what generates our red blood cells and our blood. Yeah, so the bone marrow is very important. So, um, so um, if you replace a damaged or destroyed bone with a 3D printed bone. Obviously, you will not be able to recreate that. But one would expect that you would use calcium-based material that would, in a way, recreate what the material or composition of the original bone was like. So I think it's going to be possible. I I don't think it's been done thus far, but I don't think it's too far away. So yes, in the future, you will certainly have these things happening. More and more materials, including biological materials and bones, will be 3D printed and that could certainly be the future of medicine. Yeah, so I think it's going to happen soon enough It's if it's not already been done. Okay, Harsh says, is human extinction possible? If no, then why? If, If it is possible, then by which way? Virus outbreak, AI takeover, human calamities, natural calamities, human wars, space problem? Um... See if you look at any species, it. it if you lo- see uh, our planet is about four and a half billion years old, and there have been various mass extinctions on the planet. The most recent one was the um, what's it called, the Chicxulub event, right? The Chicxulub impact, which was something that happened sixty-six million years ago, in which most of the dinosaurs died out. All the non-avian dinosaurs died out um and various species over time have gone extinct uh but some survive we survive and uh, our ancestors date back to the very beginning of the planet so life is believed to have emerged the most the unambiguous evidence is that life emerged on our planet about 3.77 billion years before today yeah those were very primitive microorganisms as far as we know and then over time, more complex biology emerged, evolved. You had microorganisms, unicellular organisms in the beginning, then you had different kinds of biology, then you had multicellular organisms, and then more complex life forms emerged. Then you had various marine life of a whole variety of marine life. And eventually these some of these marine life forms emerged out on to land. They developed the ability to breathe. The atmosphere and and uh, use that for 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 staying alive, and that's how you had uh, ground-based life forms. And we are some of, we are an example of that. So our ancestors would most likely date back to the very beginning, three point seven seven billion years ago, uh, and we carry DNA, which which most likely dates back to the beginning of life on our planet. So we have survived. So our survival. Some people would say that that Homo sapiens is about Three hundred thousand years old only. Well, Homo sapiens had predecessors and ancestors, right? Archaic humans, and they those archaic humans had older ancestors, which were the the first apes around twenty million years before today. And those apes had ancestors, the the mammal-like creatures that survived the Chikshulub impact, sixty six million years ago. Those little rat-like creatures, those rat-like creatures had ancestors that were the fish that lived in the marine environment of the planet billions of years ago. Those fish had unicellular ancestors. So we have survived close to 4 billion years. Yeah, So we are a very hardy species. It's very hard to kill us off. We have survived all kinds of mass extinctions. Yes, we have. But of course, human extinction is possible. And we have made it actually quite <laughs> quite possible to, to destroy everything off. Um, if two nations go to war, and they are both nuclear powers, who knows what could happen? It could kill off most of humanity. Uh, you could have environmental cat- catastrophes, human-created environmental catastrophes, if we destroy all our forests, Animals will die off. If animals die off, then you're gonna have a whole change in the in the in the ecosystem environment. If we could lose our food sources, even our plant sources of food, and that could kill us off. That could cause mass famines and starvation and whatnot. And very few humans could survive. Maybe all humans could could die off. If there is a Chicxulub-like kind of event, you know, a comet or asteroid that impacts the Earth, and we are not able to prevent that from happening, that could most likely kill us off. So lots of scenarios are possible. Virus outbreak, yeah, you could have a pandemic, a pandemic of some kind, an epidemic of some kind. We have had such things in the past. In the past, more than half of Europe's population was was decimated by the Black Death, the plague, which kind of skipped India for some reasons, but it ruined the rest of the world. So yes, you could have viruses, you could have pandemics, natural or not you could have wars nuclear war is a is a great way of killing off everything on the planet not everything life will survive but we we could end up becoming extinct space problem like you mentioning is is the impact of an asteroid or comet which will certainly happen in the future it could happen in the next 50 million years it could happen next week we don't know yeah uh, I think NASA keeps an eye on on all the near-Earth objects, especially objects of particular concern, which which kind of tend to cross Earth's orbit around the sun, intersect with it. Uh, thus far, they, there is no immediate cause of concern where, when it comes to these objects. But yeah, there could be objects that we are not, not aware of. You know, it just takes one to kill you off. So so yes, and, and AI takeover. <laughs> uh, that's also a, a non-zero poss- possibility a non-zero probability of that happening. So it it doesn't necessarily have to be a fully conscious, sentient AI. It could be just a non-sentient AI that can still take over the world and possibly kill off humanity. It is possible. So I think there are multiple ways in which humanity can or could become extinct. And we need to all work together and ensure these things don't happen. Yeah. So it is certainly possible. It is certainly possible. It's always been possible in the past. It's it's even more possible because of our own doing today, and and for that we need good leadership and we need to take humanity in the right dire- direction. Uh, right now, things are not going well. We are we are damaging the environment. We are destroying the oceans. If it continues like this, the oceans will be choked choked with plastic. You could have mass extinctions of fish. There's already overfishing that's happening on a routine basis so yeah this is not good if we keep on going this way it's gonna it, it it can lead to a catastrophe so yeah it's gonna take some good leadership in the future for us to uh, keep going in the right direction so i think human possi- human extinction is certainly possible in in a multiple in, in a multiplicity of ways and hopefully we we ensure it doesn't happen jav live says why are there no flying cars Yes, why are there no flying cars? I would like to have one. I will pay whatever it takes, you know. If I don't have money, I will borrow money. <laughs> I would love to have a flying car, but the, the fact is we don't have flying cars. Why is it so? We do have certain uh, drone kind of things like, you know, um human carrying drone. Do we have a human carrying drone? Uh, let's see if that is possible. Let me put that on the screen. Where's the screen? Here's the screen, here we are. So we have these drone vehicles that can carry humans. We even have that uh, that surfboard kind of thing that, that, uh, that takes you in the air. You know, I'm not sure what it's called, windboarding or whatever. So you have these vehicles that are essentially like, you know, drones, but drones that can carry a human being. Enough for one person. You can even have multiple people in there. So this is essentially a flying car. We already have it. We already have it. So... But why has it not been adopted widely? Now the technology exists, but it's not adopted widely yet. Why is it so? Think about it like this. Let's say somebody, a teenager, is given (laughs) a flying car. Hmm? Now, teenagers are kind of um, not very mature people with with good reason, because they still don't have enough experience of the world. And teenagers like to party, do do various things, you know, alcohol and stuff. Let's say you have a teenager who is drunk in a flying car. What could happen? When you have road vehicles, they are essentially traveling on a two-dimensional surface. Yes? They can go back and forth, east or west, that sort of thing. They are traveling on a flat surface. And they are traveling on pre-designated roads so if there is any collision any accident it will only happen in that particular place when you give them access to three dimensional space which means they can also go on up and up and down then it's almost impossible to regulate their behavior they could go in any direction they could crash into any, any building that's way more hazardous and then they can even they could even crash into airplanes and things like that so these are the reasons why uh, it's not really taken out, uh, taken off this technology. The technology already exists. It may be expensive. This thing, these these flying cars, may cost I don't know ten thousand dollars, maybe hundred thousand dollars. I'm not sure how much it will cost. I'm sure people can afford it, but there will be a huge amount of regulation. There's already a lot of regulation on these small drones. There are various people who use drones for for videography and photography. They um, when someone is photo when, when someone is taking a video of a wedding you typically have a drone shot yeah all the people celebrating from the sky then we, you have various filmmakers who use drones various youtubers who use drones to give a cinematic ima- cinematic imagery and all that but we're already witnessing a significant amount of of, uh, of regulation on who can acquire drones and in what way they can use them. They need all kinds of permissions. They need a license. And there are certain places where you're not allowed to use a drone. And every time you have a drone flight, you need to first take permission from the authorities that on so-and-so date in so-and-so place location i will have a drone flight for so and so duration it will go this high and so on so forth it is important that this is done otherwise you're going to have drones flying everywhere crashing into all kinds of things taking down airplanes commercial airplanes and whatnot it's dangerous and the same thing applies to flying cars once you start allowing people to fly around (laughs) it's gonna be chaos it's gonna be chaos so that's why i don't see it taking off to a significant extent any time in the future because it's dangerous and many people are irresponsible you can be irresponsible on a two dimensional surface when you are irresponsible in three dimensions the damage you can do is, is much more massive yeah so these are the reasons why thus far it's not taken off in the future there could be some people allowed to use these drones and flying cars but again it will be very very strictly and strongly regulated with good reason. So that's why we don't have flying cars thus far. Sorup Vaidya says, India is going to launch a $1 billion quantum mission to expand India's capabilities in quantum computing. National Research Foundation, NRF, scheme will be ready in six months, which will take care of the funding of universities and research centers. Your views on this. You know, it is good. It is great. It's very encouraging that the government is, is investing money in quantum computing, we need to get involved in this. India cannot be af- cannot afford to be left behind in the quantum computing race, in any other race, any technological race. It's very good. It's very encouraging that we are spending $1 billion, which is not a small amount of money, it's good. The question is, how is the money gonna be used? That's all, That's always the question. I can throw money at something, but how is the money gonna be used? That's always the real problem. Now, India's universities, you're going to fund them. Is there any research happening in India's universities? Do India's universities have the research capabilities? Maybe, maybe this money will be used to develop the capability to do research. The other question is, do India's academicians have the ability to do research? To answer the question, you have to see how people are given jobs, And how they are promoted. In India's universities, you unfortunately have the reservation system. Which means it is not a merit-based system. You look at India's professors, academicians, 95% of them are not capable of doing research. They have no inclination or interest in doing research. We know that. There are some good scientists, no doubt. There are some really good scientists as well, maybe 1%. No doubt but 95% of them are unfortunately mediocrities. They're not capable of doing research. They don't have the understanding of what research is. How will they take India forward in this? I What I would like, what I hope happens is that we set up new institutions where this research is done. Not the good old universities that have been around for 3,000 years. Not 3,000, sorry. these All of India's universities are the old ones. I will not name any. But these are colonial institutions. They are run in the same old colonial bureaucratic fashion. The money, the budget is always controlled by the bureaucrats, by the non-teaching staff. And the teaching staff itself is, is, doesn't have any inclination for, for doing research. How much research is coming out of India? Answer me. How much research has come out of... Genuine. How much genuine, valuable, path-breaking research has come out, come out of India in the past 20 years? In the field of the sciences. Give me some examples. Can you come up with anything? That, that's the problem. That's a problem. There are good scientists. Some good scientists. No doubt. But they are shackled by the system. So you throw money at the... You, you invest money in these universities. I wonder where the money will be used. You go to certain very, very high ranking institutions in this, in this country, in India. You will find that the labs... Have 20, 30-year-old equipment, but the conference rooms and the washrooms have millions of dollars invested in them. That's what you find. That's one, that's what happens when bureaucrats take decisions and they decide where to put money. Yeah. So that is the problem. So you have the same system that's going on. You put more money into the same system, you will get more of the same results. You understand? So what India needs is, first of all, we need to reform the education system. The universities must be made more research-oriented and their sh- promotions and hirings should be done based on merit only, not based on quotas and reservations and affirmative action and God knows what else. That's how you take the country backwards, not forwards. Look at how Germany transformed itself mm-hmm. in the late 19th century. It became a technological and scientific superpower almost overnight, they had these universities based purely on merit, huge amounts of money were invested in real research, cutting edge research. And the scientists were hired based on their capabilities, their ability and the merit, and they were promoted based on merit. All the various German scientists who were at the forefront of the quantum revolution, they became full professors when they were in their 20s. Some of them became heads of department, or heads of institutions in their early 30s. Lots of names, you know, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Einstein, so many, so many more. Born, even other countries like Niels Bohr, Sweden, Sweden, was it? Sweden most likely, and so on. There's so many, that's how you take a nation forward, scientifically and technologically. You have the same old corrupt colonial system, you can pour in a hundred billion dollars, it's going to produce the same results. So that's the problem. So if, if, if India is spending a billion dollars in quantum computing, I hope we create new institutions, new institutes that are purely research-based and where they will hire people based on their ability, not based on quotas. And the only way the money is used will be in doing research, not in the salaries of non-teaching staff and bureaucrats and, and million-dollar washrooms and trillion-dollar conference rooms, not that. That's a complete waste of money. Look at DRDO. DRDO has roughly 30,000 employees. Out of those 30,000 employees, about 5,000 are scientists. 25,000 employees are non-scientists, non-scientific staff. What kind of a joke is this? This is how the nation's money is being wasted. So it's a good thing the government wants to invest a billion dollars in quantum computing. The question is, how is the money going to be used? And that's where I have a few questions. Just saying it. All right. Okay, the question is, uh, Captain Burp91. What is thrust vectoring, which is used in modern-day fighter jets like Sukhoi, Su-30, MKI, Lockheed Martin F-22, Raptor, and how does a radar on a S-400 detect stealth jets, but a conventional radar cannot? Thank you. Okay, what is thrust vectoring? It's very simple. See, uh, uh, let me show you what MAC diamonds are. MAC diamonds. Okay, there's something called MAC diamonds. This is the exhaust of, of, of uh, jet engine, shock diamonds, MAC diamonds, call it whatever you want. Uh, so typically you have a, a, a jet engine that has an exhaust that goes in the opposite direction of which the jet engine itself goes, goes right? Now in thrust vectoring, what you can do is you can control the direction in which the exhaust goes. So let me show you thrust vectoring, thrust vectoring. So it's a technology, you see this, you can send the jet in, if you have two engines, you can make the exhaust of the two engines go in different directions. In using that, you get more control on the way the jet uh, on, on the way the fighter plane can be maneuvered. So thrust vectoring fighter planes, which have the thrust vectoring capabilities, are more maneuver, maneuverable than an, a jet engine, than a jet fighter, jet plane that does not have the thrust vectoring ability. So what a thrust vectoring uh, what the technology does is that it allows you to direct the exhaust any in any direction in three dire in three dimensions so that gives you essentially hyper maneuverability can you see you can you can send the exhaust in any direction direction you want so that essentially is is thrust vectoring like you said the sukhoi 30 fighter plane the lockheed martin f22 fighter plane and various other fighter planes have this capability that's what thrust vectoring is now how does a radar on the s400 system detect stealth jets But a conventional radar cannot. Actually, all radars can detect stealth jets. The question is, at what range? That's the only question. A good, powerful radar is one that can detect a stealth jet at a large distance. A mediocre radar may be able to detect it only at 10 kilometer range, at which you can't do anything. Yeah? because. A stealth jet typically flies, let's say you're talking about the F-35, which is a reasonably stealthy jet. It's uh, It can fly supersonic. So if you can detect that uh, the plane with your radar at only 10 kilometers distance, it's, it's going to be gone in an eye blink of time. And then again, you cannot track it. So a good radar is one that can detect a stealth jet at a, a longer distance, at a, at a greater distance. Uh, so I think the... Uh, S-400 radar, if I'm not mistaken, can detect a stealth jet like um, a typical stealth jet at about 40-50 kilometers distance, right? So that's not a very big distance. You can, A plane can traverse that distance very quickly. But what it can do is it can lock onto the plane. And uh, so the S-400 radar is the AESA radar, active electronically scanned uh, whatever radar, which is a very difficult technology to, to master. So S-400, uh, the system, it has multiple radars. It has a network of radars that all feed feed into a three-dimensional battle space environment. That's what they create. And even the missiles have radars of their own. So what the system does, it, it uses inputs from multiple radar systems to paint a unified picture of the airspace. And these are all AESA radars, which can detect stealth jets at about 40, 50 kilometers distance. So they use this to track the the, the aircraft. So it's able to track it, it launches a missile and it keeps on talking to the missile until the missile is at a range where its own radar can detect the stealth jet. Then the missile is left to go on its own autonomously. So that's typically how it works. So all radars can actually detect stealth jets. The only thing is, is, is the distance good enough? You want to detect the stealth jet as far away from you as possible so that you have the maximum possible reaction time and decision-making time. If you are able to detect it only for 3 seconds, you can't do much with that. If you can detect it for like 30 seconds, you can do something with that. You know. So that's how it is. So I think the uh, S-400 radar is good and it's able to detect stunts i think around 30 40 50 kilometers distance which is which gives it a reasonable amount of time to to do some damage yeah so yeah that's how it works radar technology tech curiosity says who uh, do you think that the internet is the greatest and most influential invention until date it's certainly one of the most Powerful and most influential inventions. Uh, it's brought the whole world together. Uh, the internet became uh, reasonably uh, well adopted. I think in the late nineteen nineties, people were using it in the mid nineties. But uh, we had the dot com bubble that that in Silicon Valley in the late nineties. Then there was a dot com crash, and then things went in a different direction, and the internet became. Started becoming adopted for for uh, financial transactions, for banking and other things. That's when it was taken seriously, and now it's used for almost everything. You cannot imagine life without the internet today. So it is certainly it is it's most likely the most most influential invention. And it started as a means of making computers talk to each other over large distances. You know. Once that happened, I think it it started with ARPANET in the US. Maybe it was first tried out in CERN in Geneva, Switzerland, possibly. I'm not sure. I don't remember the exact history. But it started as a means of making computers talk to each other remotely over long distances. Once that was feasible, then they started creating networks of computers who would talk to each other and through which, through this network, you could share documents and data. And over time, then what happened is that browsers appeared, internet browsers, through which you could appear, through which, which you could uh, browse web pages coded in HTML. Then you had CSS. Then you had JavaScript, and things were built on top of each other. So it started as a very bare bones thing, and slowly various technologies were built on top of that, layers and layers and layers of technology. Now you have search engine, you have entire computational engines and whatnot, algorithms. Uh, some people say the internet could have a mind of its own, who knows, yeah, so yeah, I think it's one of the, if not the most powerful and influential invention we have ever seen, it's completely transformed uh, humanity, yeah, the human experience, human existence, so yeah, most likely the most powerful, the greatest, most influential invention till date. Okay, Ayush says, what are gravitons? Are they real? Uh, Gravitons, okay, so let's talk about the forces. We know of four forces in nature, four forces of nature. uh, The weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and the gravitational force. We have these four forces. Now, if you look at the standard model, we have these We have what's called exchange particles. What are exchange particles? These are particles that are exchanged, and the exchange of these particles produces what we perceive as these forces. Uh, Mediator particles, exchange particles. So the exchange particle, when it comes to the strong nuclear force, is the gluon. The gluon. Uh, Then the exchange particle for the weak nuclear force is the W and the Z bosons. Yeah? The exchange particle for the electromagnetic force is the photon. Photons are exchanged. Virtual, virtual photons. Keeping in um, keeping um, within the parameters of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, we have the exchange of virtual, virtual particles, virtual photons. It is this exchange of virtual photons that gives rise to what we perceive as electromagnetism. Yeah. So we have electromagnetic attraction, repulsion, depending on the charges and all that, and you have the exchange of photons that produces this force. Similarly, we have the force of gravity. Now it is hypothesized or theorized that there is an exchange particle that mediates gravity as well, which is the hypothetical graviton. Yeah. So that's the fourth uh, exchange particle that is hypothesized. It's never been detected. It's never been uh, found but it is hypothesized, postulated, theorized to exist and that could be behind the uh, force of gravity. In case gravity is a quantum force, in case gravity is a force at all, from the perspective of general relativity, gravity is not a force, it is simply the the, the warping, the bending of space-time. It is the bending of space-time that we perceive as gravity. Yeah? It is the bending and warping of space-time that gives rise to what we feel is the force of gravity. Now, we know the gravity is extremely weak. It is the weakest of the forces. How do we know this? How do we know this? Take a small magnet. Small magnet. The kind of magnet you put in a fridge. Yeah. That small magnet can pick up a paper clip. Yes. It can pick up, pick up a paper, paper clip. Do you understand what's happening? The magnet, uh, it works. The force that a magnet uses it, it, it is the electromagnetic force, right? So this little magnet is able to pick up a paper clip and, and take it upwards. By doing that, it is defeating the force of gravity. Now the magnet is this small. A magnet of this size is able to defeat the force, the gravitational force exerted by an entire planet, the Earth. So a tiny magnet... Is it produces an electromagnetic force that is stronger than the gravitational force produced by the entire planet Earth. That illustrates how weak a force gravity is. Right. So the graviton is going to be incredibly hard to detect. You would need a planet-sized detector. Even that would not work well. You even if you had a Jupiter-sized detector, gravitational detector, even then it may be difficult to detect gravitons. So gravitons are theoretical uh, particles but uh, detecting them is going to be uh, it's going to be something we leave to our descendants it's not going to happen within our lifetimes at all nobody is going to even try most likely to detect gravitons yeah but that's what gravitons are are they real we still don't know if if the general rel- relativity uh, picture is correct then uh, gravity may not be a quantum force. It may not be a force at all. It may just be an illusion that seems to be a force. It may just be the bending, the warping of space-time. But if there is a quantum theory of gravity, if gravity does emerge from the quantum level, from the from the quantum scale, then you may have gravitons. So we still don't know. But yes, it is a hypothesized, a theorized theorized particle. If you look at any any illustration schematic of the Standard Model Particle Zoo. You will see the Graviton. Let's let's take a look at the Standard Model. Standard Model Particles. Okay, let's put that on the screen. Standard Model of Particle Physics. Do we have the Graviton in there? Ah, they have not included the Graviton, as far as I can see. But yeah, in some cases, people do include the Graviton. So yeah, it's it's something that's not been detected yet thus far, and that's why some, in some cases you do include, include the graviton, in some cases you do not, and so on. So yeah, that's the answer, that's what gravitons are. Are they real? We still don't know. Maybe we'll know in the future, someday. Okay, what is the temperature of space? The temperature of space is 2 point something degrees Kelvin. Which is the temperature? Of the electromagnetic radiation that permeates space. And what is that electromagnetic radiation? It is the cosmic microwave background radiation. What is that? It is the afterglow of the Big Bang. Essentially, that's what it is. It is the remnants of the first light that shone in the universe. Right? Now that light was once very, very hot, very bright. The temperature was very high, but then space itself started expanding the expanding universe and slowly because of the expansion of space-time uh, these these photons their wavelengths got stretched out and now they are in the far infrared very 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 low energy photons 2.7 or so kelvin don't quote me two point something kelvin very very cold very low energy far infrared and that is essentially the temperature of space 2 point something Kelvin which is close to 0 Kelvin extremely cold that's what it is yeah so that is the temperature of space okay Dr. Nishchay says Ayurvedic medicine is mostly dismissed as being herbs, rubbish, non-scientific by modern medical practitioners. What's your take and experience on Ayurveda and why is modern medicine having so much hostility towards Ayurvedic medicines? Why is it even a, speci- a separate medical branch despite having active ingredients? Why is it not clubbed under evidence-based medicine? It's not a scientific thing. It's There is a hostility towards Indian culture and I- Indian traditions. And that is why Ayurveda is dismissed. But they then use Ayurvedic uh, Knowledge, but rebrand it. For instance, you have something called Pranayam, which is not Ayurveda, which is Indian tradition. We have something called Pranayam. The West has rebranded it as cardiac coherence breathing. It is nothing but Pranayam, but they are rebranding it, repackaging it under this new name, cardiac coherence breathing. And similarly, various Ayurvedic uh, herbs like Brahmi, for example, have been rebranded as Bacopa Monieri or something. And there is research being done on their active ingredients. It is being now uh, used as a so-called nootropic, something that can enhance your cognitive powers and intelligence and brain power and all that. Uh, There is research that's being done on various Ayurvedic uh, well-known herbs, but they will all be rebranded as something non-Indian. So the it is, the hostility is not towards Ayurveda itself, it's towards Indian culture. It's towards Indian traditions. India is the oldest known civilization. India is the oldest continuously existing civilization. And the West resents that. Yeah, There's a whole different story to that, which we will not talk about over here. So, it's not really being dismissed. Lots of research, I believe, is happening, but it will not be... Whenever some breakthrough happens, whenever they isolate the active ingredient let's say curcumin which is uh, what is called haridra in sanskrit you know uh, it will be it will be rebranded as something else and uh, most people will not even realize that it's something that came out of ayurveda so that's how it is so what needs to be done india needs to create its own scientific institutes of ayurvedic research very simple and whatever breakthroughs happen patent them And make sure that they are attributed to Ayurveda. Whatever others do, it's something we can't control. And it's something we should not complain about. Why doesn't India start its own research institutes for Ayurvedic research? You research the various Ayurvedic herbs and compounds, etc. Using 21st century scientific methods. Isolate the actual active ingredients and patent that and commercialize it if required. Or make it available for free to people, whatever. So India needs to take steps to uh, safeguard its heritage. The West is under no obligation to give India any... any. See, there is no justice in the world, right? People take what they can. So it's up to us whether we want to allow people to take everything that, that we have created. Uh, so yeah, that's how it is. It is certainly evidence-based medicine. It is certainly something that's been around, that's been proven to work for thousands of years it doesn't work in the allopathic manner that you take this three the, this the, these doses for like 5 days and you're done this is something that is part of a lifestyle but it does work and if you can isolate the active ingredients in various compounds various herbs whether it is arjuna whether it is brahmi whether it is, is guduchi or whatever you could you could actually make massive uh, medical breakthroughs i'm sure it's possible so india needs to take uh, the lead in this The Indian government should create national institutes of Ayurvedic research. The research should be done using 21st century scientific methods and all of that should be patented and should all be branded under the umbrella of Ayurveda. That's what needs needs to be done. So that's what I can say. Next question. Won't appear. Okay, here it is. So this is by Atmaj. What's your take on energy beverages? Is it superior to um, tea? Um, Tea, coffee contain... Uh, so coffee contains caffeine, which is known to be a stimulant. Stimulant or... I don't know what category it falls under. Uh, but yeah, it, it keeps you awake. It makes you alert and all that. So that's caffeine. That's from coffee. Tea contains tea in... Which is which has a similar effect. It kind of perks you up. It makes you more more alert, more active, but it's not as 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 strong as caffeine, as far as I know. Yeah. So tea and coffee are both stimulants, and they 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 make you more alert and all that. Energy beverages. Don't I think in most energy beverages, two examples are Red Bull and Monster Monster Energy. Both of these drinks, the main active ingredient is caffeine. I think they contain massive doses of caffeine, maybe 200, 300, 300 ml of caffeine per can. And that's typically what works what you up and what gives you the energy, as to say. So to say, there could also be some other compounds like uh, citrulline malleate or beta alanine or something like that. I'm not sure what, what it's called. So the, they could also have some, some kind of effect of, of uh, giving you some energy or some focus, things like that. There's also this this class of uh, of products called uh, pre-workout supplements. Yeah, that kind of uh, review op or something. I think these things, uh, you develop a tolerance to that. I'm sure you even de- develop a tolerance to caffeine and tea over time. So I think uh, these are... The main ingredient in most energy beverages is, is anyway caffeine. So I don't think it's superior to tea or anything. People enjoy tea because tea is, is rich and complex. There are so many different varieties of tea. You have green tea, you have red tea, you have brown tea, black tea and all that. The different flavors of tea. You can put various different spices into tea, cardamom and uh, various things. You know There are all these various Uh, spice compounds, spice mixtures you can add to tea and make it more aromatic, more fragrant. So I think tea is a very rich thing. These energy beverages, they're like shortcuts. It's like injecting something into your body. It works for a while, but you don't get the enjoyment that people who who are tea connoisseurs would would get out of tea. So I don't think it's superior to tea. People who need a a pick-me-up or something could do that, you know. Take a shot of caffeine. There are caffeine pills available that would work even better, I suppose. for just have a black coffee or something. So it's it's at the end of the day, it's all up to you. What you enjoy, what you like, and what works for you. Yeah. So I don't think anything is superior to the other. Whatever works for you is superior for you, and that's that's what matters. So it's something that's an individual choice and preference. Atmaj again. I know this is not gonna get answered, but do you watch anime? <laughs> do I watch uh, not really? I don't get the time. But yeah, I, I must have watched some anime in the past. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's questions that I picked that I picked up. Let's take some questions from the live chat. A few questions from the live chat. What do we have? I had many more questions, but we are almost at the end of our time, so I'll take some live chat questions now. Okay, Bolly MV says, What's the difference between an asteroid, a comet, and a meteor? Let me also add one more meteorite. So, what's an asteroid? An asteroid is a rock that's floating around in space, it's it's orbiting the sun. That's an asteroid, so you have various classes of asteroids, depending on where they are located in the solar system. You have the standard asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. So you have the inner planets, the terrestrial planets, which is Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. These are the innermost orbits. Then you have an asteroid belt between the orbits of Jupiter, between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. That is the, that's a collection of space debris, rocks. So those are called asteroids. You also have a bunch of Trojan asteroids, which are at the Lagrange point of Jupiter. That's a whole different story. So these are essentially space rocks, big space rocks or small space rocks, tiny ones. These are all called asteroids. Typically an asteroid is something which is reasonably large, yeah, rock sized, boulder sized, building sized. These mm-hmm. are asteroids. The largest asteroid we think, I think is Vesta. It's like a small micro, mini planet kind of thing. Yeah that's what an asteroid is what's a comet a comet is a dirty uh, snowball <laughs> it, it's 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 composed of of rubble there is some rock there is some soot there is some some dust and there's a lot of ice water snow and there could be uh, organic compounds also in that yeah so that's what comets are they are essentially dirty snowballs Ice, snow, and water, frozen water, mixed together with some rock and some dust and some chemical organic compounds. And comets, when they approach, they, they also orbit the sun in various elliptical orbits. Some are small orbits, some are enormous object or orbits. Some comets may approach the sun once in three thousand years. Some in once in eighty thousand years. Some comets go around the sun every few decades and so on and so forth. So when they approach the sun. Because of the heating effect of the of the radiation pressure of the sun of the solar wind, the water heats up. It evaporates. And it produces this long tail, long tail like structure that is visible from Earth, and that's what we call comets. What's a meteor? A meteor is a space rock that enters the Earth's atmosphere and burns up at the atmosphere, so-called shooting stars. What's a meteorite? It's one of these space rocks that doesn't burn up, but which does burn, but ends up impacting the surface of the planet whether it's over the oceans or on uh, ground. Yeah. So that's the difference between asteroid, comet, meteor and meteorite. Right. I hope that answers the question. Let's take one or two more questions about science. Um, uh, Is is human cloning justified? I think it's unethical to, to clone humans because you are creating humans for your own agendas and purposes. Human life, I mean, from the pers- perspective of ethics, is, is something that's inviolable. It's sacred. You cannot mess around with it. You don't own humans. If you're cloning a human, you're kind of creating a human tailor-made to your specifications and, and and you're in a way owning it. You hold that that person's life in your hands, so to say, which is clearly unethical. So when it comes to medical ethics, human cloning is considered to be completely unethical and it's illegal in most places. I'm sure some nations are tinkering with certain things, but I would I personally would consider it to be unethical. Yeah. So yeah, I would say it's not justified. It's not something anyone should do. Um Sajad says, do you think evolution really happened? Well well the best evidence that we have from the fossil record and everything else does indicate that e- evolution happened. Look at the the fossil record when it comes to human species. We have Homo sapiens, the oldest evidence is from about 300,000 years ago. Yep, the oldest fossil evidence of Homo sapiens is uh, was discovered in Jebel Irhud in North Africa, Morocco, I think, Algeria, somewhere there, 300,000 years ago. That's how old it is. Before that, we have had so many other archaic species of humans, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo neanderthalus, Homo florensis and so on and so forth, Denisovan also. And then you had older forms of humans, uh, more archaic humans or, or or Australopithecus, Ardipithecus and so on. So you can clearly see that that's evolution happening and, and the, the morphology and the shape of the bones and, and the abilities, the cranial capacity, all of that is changing over time. Even the eyes have moved to the front. Our deep ancestors who lived like 60, 60 million years ago had eyes on the sides. Yeah. And so on. You can see how dogs have evolved. We can see that dogs are closely, are the same species as the wolf, and the foxes are related to dogs. Jackals are related to dogs. Wolves, foxes, dogs, jackals, very close together and very similar. Bears are a distant relative of dogs. Seals and whales are also related to the dogs. The same extended family. And you have cats that have evolved over time. So you can see that evolution has actually happened. And you can see it, date back millions of years, even billions of years in the fossil record. So from all the evidence that we have, of experimental evidence, hard evidence, empirical evidence, it does appear from all this evidence, to the best of our knowledge, that evolution really did happen. Right? Okay. Choose one, math or physics. Uh, It's physics. Math is a tool, as far as I'm concerned. Physics is what actually makes things interesting math is about categories and logic physics is where you actually apply it to the real world so for me it's physics but some people enjoy math which is perfectly good um okay which branch should i take to become a theoretical physicist in btech if you're doing a btech you're doing uh, you're in a technical field technological field you're studying to be an engineer If you are studying engineering, you can certainly go back into theoretical physics, but ah, I I don't know what advice I can offer you because I don't know you personally. I don't know what your aptitudes are, what your strengths are. If you want to become, see what kind of person becomes a good theoretical physicist, first of all, you need to have, you need to be good at math. That is a given. You can't do theoretical physics without being really, really good at advanced mathematics, Not, not basic math, really advanced mathematics yeah so you should be able to quickly pick up mathematical tools that's number one and secondly you should be curious about the mysteries of the universe that's what theoretical physics is all about about unraveling and demystifying the universe yeah uh, so typically you would need to have the, the 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 mindset of a detective of a very curious detective wow look at this mystery let's let's figure it out if you have that approach then you would be a good theoretical physicist and you, you may have that curiosity and fascination but if you are not good at math then you still can't do it so yeah that's what i would say first of all you do ask yourself if you if you if if that's who you are if that's the kind of person you have if you're doing a btech then you may not be able to get into theoretical mm-hmm. physics so typically for a theoretical physics uh, career you would need to have bsc msc then phd or something or like that yeah if you want to have a career within the academic system, so yeah, that's how it would go. Chiching says, How to have a sharp mind and not be forgetful? Um, you, you can't have a sharp mind if you are physically unfit, first of all. So, you need to take care of yourself physically, stay physically active, physically fit, don't eat too much, don't become obese or weight. That, that's first thing, yeah. Um, uh, secondly. Uh, not be forgetful. I am forgetful. I I forget people's names and faces all the time. I may have met somebody five minutes ago. I may sometimes forget people's faces. So, it's it's (laughs) someone saying eat almonds. (laughs) You know, um, I think if you want to have a sharp mind, be curious. I'm sure you are fascinated with something or the other. Follow that curiosity, that fascination. And when you study stuff, Always give yourself the permission to forget stuff. Give yourself the, the permission to forget whatever you don't find interesting. That way, you will pick up those things you find interesting. And those may be the important things. So, yeah, that's that's my, that's my how my approach has always been. I am a very forgetful person in, in a variety of things. I forget the faces and names of most people. Apologies in advance to those of you who I, who I may meet in the future. And if I don't remember you, yeah, so... Some people naturally have sharp minds. I don't know. I'm not one of them. I forget things. But uh, stay physically fit. Stay physically active. If you work out regularly, you're gonna have a sharp mind for sure. Eat well. Eat good food. Eat lots of vegetables and good amount of protein goes along with that. Protein of your choice. And when you study, give yourself the permission to forget. Only remember what you find interesting. That way you'll do. You'll do well. Yeah. And yeah, some people would say meditate. That helps. Yeah, meditation also helps. And um, in case you have a restless mind, write. Writing calms your mind down. It focuses your mind. So if you have a writing habit, write a thousand words a day, whatever, whatever topic. So that could sharpen your mind further. You know, writing crystallizes your thoughts and so on. So yeah, these are some of the things I could tell you. I hope that helps. Okay, I think we are done for today. We have crossed the two hour mark as always. Uh, So yes, yes. Thank you so much. For all your questions, always great fun answering your questions. I apologize to those of you whose questions I've not taken. I've taken many more, but I always run out of time. So we'll keep on doing this. And I will see you very soon in the next chapter of the Ask Abid show, which is tomorrow. Tomorrow is a different topic, geopolitics, history, and current affairs. But we will keep on doing the science sessions weekly. And let's keep on doing this. Thank you very much. Take care, all of you. Do very well. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye-bye.